Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. This week, I'm joined by Peter Kreko. He is the Director of the Political Capital Institute in Budapest, as well as a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Security Analysis. He is a Hungarian and has quite a lot to say about his native country, particularly in light of the fact that it has become sort of lodestone for the conservative right here in America, including the alt-right. You may have seen several weeks ago Tucker Carlson's week-long jaunt to Budapest and his um, warm embrace of Prime Minister Viktor Orban. So one of the reasons I wanted Peter to come on is to sort of explain what is taking place in Hungary and this kind of creeping authoritarianism and why he thinks it serves as such a seductive paradigm for whatever you want to call it, America's MAGA right or or kind of its new new right with Donald Trump at, at sort of the head of it all. Peter, great to have you back. I should tell my listeners, when I say back, it's not that he's been on the show before, so far as you know, but last week we had a feast of reason and flow of the soul that lasted over an hour, at the end of which I realized I forgot to click record on the Zoom call, which is how we record the podcast. So Peter's actually graciously agreed for an, to do an encore performance for all of you, in which time I think he's been able to refine some of his talking points and hopefully we'll, I'll be much less long-winded and uh, befuddled. Peter, <laughs> first, thanks thanks for making the time yet again. <laughs> thanks a lot, Michael. And yeah, great to have this conversation again. So explain to, to us what has taken place in Hungary over the last decade. Why is this such a danger, not only to Europe, Central Europe, and also because of Hungary's member state status in NATO and the European Union to to those institutions, but also now to the United States, because Hungary, as you were discussing the last time we spoke, is becoming this sort of aspiring exponent of intellectual and philosophical and indeed moral trends. They they want to tutor the West in how to be kind of a a new reactionary civilization. Is is that correct? Yeah, I... I think it's correct. And um, the interesting story about Hungary, a country that is, by the way, at the middle of the center of uh, the European Union, uh, the country of 10 million people, an EU and NATO member states. So these kind of countries rarely make that much publicity in the international press because their politics is mostly boring, uh, right. boringly democratic and and boringly predictable. And uh, I think the Hungarian political landscape is increasingly predictable in the sense that that Hungary have went a long way of de-democratization, especially in the last uh, 12 years. But it definitely punches above its weight when it comes to international media appearances, and uh, international fame. And uh, I can tell you that at the last elections, uh, back to 2018, the international attention that Hungary received was enormous. And it was the first time where correspondents, even from Brazil and uh, South Korea and other countries that has usually not been that interested about what's going on in Hungary, came to Budapest and wanted to talk to journalists, understand more about Viktor Orban's regime. So it's quite a remarkable achievement from Viktor Orban's side. And especially if we take into consideration that until about 2010, Hungary has been regarded by one of the most democratic countries in the region with the most mature democratic institutions and with with, uh, 
a very strong, I would say, successful process of joining to the European Union in 2004 that was preceded by a an externally forced, but still very important process of strengthening democratic institutions. So Hungary has practically become from the champion of democracy at the Central Eastern European region to the most illiberal country within the European Union and uh, in Central Eastern Europe, the only country that according to Freedom House is not totally free country anymore, but a partly free country. So it's it describes the regime as, as a kind of hybrid regime in between uh, liberal democracy and, and a full-scale authoritarian regime. And the nature of hybrid regimes is that they are never black and white in terms of their institutions. There are 50 shades of gray. So you have institutions that are closer to white in the sense that they have higher level of independence and for example the the courts and the judiciary still i would say uh, only light gray but also you have institutions that are closer to black in the sense that they are uh, much more part of a, of a very evidently authoritarian uh, setup like the state owned media in hungary compared to which russia today for example really represents the highest level of journalistic standards and uh, independence. And it's a weird phenomenon too, isn't it? I mean, this was sort of the 89er generation that Orban represents. I mean, it, it reminds me of Anne Applebaum's last book about all of her friends who had agitated for so many years to see the end of Soviet totalitarianism, the end of communism throughout Europe, who outwardly believed in the onrush of liberalization, democracy, market capitalism. You know, they were kind of the end of history boys and girls. Now have transformed into these, as you say, hybrid authoritarians or, or kind of neo-reactionaries who are talking in the, the language of really kind of antique categories of civilization, you know, family, nationhood, patriotism, decrying their critics and opponents as, I mean, subversives, really. Talk a little bit, if you, if you will, about the, you say that there's 50 shades of gray, which actually reminds me of that, isn't that that story of one of Orban's party members who is like vehemently anti-LGBT and he was caught like sneaking out of the window of a, of a gay orgy in, in downtown Budapest. So there's always there's a weird psychosexual component to some of this too. But describe what this regime actually does. How does it try to silence its opponents? How has it sort of taken over the media or at least crowded out in the space for dissident or critical voices? I mean, because this is not a dictatorship properly understood. There are still elections, right? There is still a, an election coming up. The problem is the access to information and the permissibility of civil society to carry on doing what it's supposed to do has been constrained, right? Yes, it's a very important point. And I totally agree that it is crucial to understand the shades of gray and not paint everything in black and white. Uh, Hungary is an increasingly authoritarian regime, but not comparable to countries that Viktor Orban himself mentioned back to 2014 as model countries, uh, Turkey and Russia. But the uh, full-scale dictatorship that we can see in these countries with a high level of violence uh, applied against the critics of the regime uh, is not really visible in, in Hungary. So the Hungarian authoritarianism and the illiberalism is much more sophisticated than that. And, and um, it's not, not just by mistake that you can't 
see pictures in the international news where, where demonstrations are brutally beaten up and opposition journalists are jailed or murdered. Luckily, this is exactly not the case in Hungary. And the uh, Hungarian authoritarianism, uh, one remarkable element of that is that it does not really need the application of, of violence. One important tool of having a strong control over the public is through a huge media conglomerate that was first prepared by pro-governmental oligarchs buying up uh, media from the market and then turn them into uh, pro-governmental mouthpieces. But this step was not that much different from what we could see in the early days of Putinism uh, after the cursed submarine catastrophe, when Putin could see that an independent press is highly dangerous for his standing the popularity and reputation. Therefore, a similar tactic was applied. But Hungary is a country of 10 million, it's a small country. And, and there was one step beyond uh, that when the pro-governmental oligarchs gave these media outlets that was seemingly or on paper was their property to the state, to a huge state-owned media conglomerate called Kashma. It consists more than 500 media outlets in a country of, of 10 million, and which is parroting politically tailored messages uh, towards the public. And it uh, sometimes can paint uh, really Orwellian impressions on the public discourse in Hungary. At the same time, there is still independent media operating in Hungary, uh, especially in the, on the online domain in a quite high quality. And But the financing of the media is becoming more and more troublesome, especially because for example, the state is the biggest advertiser in Hungary, and uh, state-owned companies would never advertise in real opposition media. So the advertisements that are controlled by the state and increasingly market advertisements are, are indirectly also can be diverted by the state. Uh, so the advertisements follow a political logic and not a PR or, or marketing logic. So the, the media and the the public domain is very, very important. And here again, the tactics are not classical silencing. Yes, there has been some media outlets that has been silenced, but usually the journalists can continue their work in an independent media outlet. The big question is more that how big is the, is the microphone that you are talking into? You are not silenced, your mouth is still open, but your voice is becoming uh, less and less loud. If you criticize the Government And the other very important point of, let's say, reproducing public support or maintaining public support was uh, occupying in that independent institutions such as the prosecutor's office or the constitutional court, which is more or less plays a similar role in Hungary than the Supreme Court, filling them up with uh, Fidesz loyalists. And the prosecutor's office itself could block very efficiently in the last 12 years, Viktor Orban came back to power in 2010, and he's governing then subsequently. So they could block the, all the investigations of pro-governmental corruption, which are huge stories, yeah. because Hungary is increasingly becoming a corrupt, nepotistic state with a very centralized corruption uh, machinery. So that that's, gives you a, a very granular look at sort of the I guess, party capture of the state and, uh, you know, non-state institutions. But at the more philosophical level, what I find intriguing about 
Hungary is, and, and you've, you've seen some of this coming from Poland and, you know, certain actors in the Czech Republic or Czechia, they are using the language of anti-totalitarianism in order to further their authoritarianism. In other words, you know, the European Union, which I think Milos Zemin, the president of Czechia at one point had described as the new Soviet Union, this represents a kind of mortal existential threat to Hungarian sovereignty and traditional way of life and culture. Uh, you're seeing it now with the kind of anti-LGBT campaigning and, and activism, notwithstanding our friend who snuck out the window from his orgy. But you're also seeing it with respect to the kind of civilizational aspects of, you know, we must protect Hungary as a Christian state and keep out the sort of invading Muslim hordes and all of that. And this is a, a powerful argument domestically, no doubt, to people because, I mean, communism and, and totalitarianism are within living memory of, of at least a good chunk of the Hungarian population. But I wonder, does this now make it more saleable to other countries in the West, particularly here in North America, where we have no such experience with, you know, lack of democracy that, oh, okay, so if the Hungarians who have thrown off the yoke of Moscow and, and a kind of, I mean, you mentioned Orwell, that this sort of everything that we've read about from the 20th century, uh, you know, Stalinism, if they've managed to survive that and they see something deeply rotten in the way that liberal democracy has evolved, um, the rise of political correctness or wokeness, a too decadent society driven by consumerism and a lack of spirituality, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they must be on to something, right? Is that is that why American conservatives such as Tucker Carlson and Rod Dreyer are so drawn to Orban as a kind of paradigm for what conservatism writ large ought to be? Yes, I think that this civilizational argument that you mentioned is, is very important and it makes Hungarian foreign policy more easy to sell, at least uh, through ideological channels in the West. But what is important to see behind that is that Viktor Orban and his regime is increasingly isolated in the international level. So Viktor Orban had a good friend in Washington, Donald Trump, but he's not, not in office anymore. He had a very good friend in, uh, in Tel Aviv, Benjamin Netanyahu, but he's not in office anymore. Chancellor Merkel, who, who was clearly not an open supporter for his illiberal adventures, but through German mercantilism, which of course will not disappear overnight, but she was an embodiment of this pragmatic approach of, of Germany towards century senior, where let's say keeping the markets alive and, and also the, let's say, keep help for the German economy to run through labor, cheap labor force and things like that. So it was very important to uh, Chancellor Merkel and also led to a situation where she was less vigilant and less outspoken about illiberal tendencies in Hungary. So she's out of office as well. Viktor Orban has more and more enemies within the European Council, the most important decision-making body within the European Union, with uh, more and more prime ministers openly calling for Hungary to leave the European Union after this uh, homophobic legislation was passed in the Hungarian parliament. So he is increasingly isolated on the official diplomatic front. And he reaches out in a kind of soft power ideological diplomacy towards the fringes of politics, mainly in the world. And, and the conservatives in the United States, of course, he hopes, and he also told recently, 
when he was uh, cheering Mike Pence here in, in Budapest, when he was host talking at a demographic conference. He hopes that American conservatives will come back uh, to power uh, really soon, either with Trump or without Trump, but Trumpism will prevail. He hopes that, that in European politics, uh, politicians such as uh, Marine Le Pen and uh, the Lega party in, in Italy will will dominate European politics, and then he will go against go again to the mainstream. But this is not really what we can expect at the moment. At the moment, he's desperately need of showing up some international support, and he uses tools such as yeah, Tucker Carlson or gentlemen such as Rod Dreher as messengers of his regime, and, and he wants to play this model role for international conservatives. And I do think that he has some ideas that uh, so he has solid place among let's say paleoconservative thinkers if you read his speeches and and texts i think they make sense from this ideological point of view but on the other hand he is not uh, as influential and powerful he he would like to be he more and more talks to the margins and not that much to the mainstream as you mentioned there is a lot of hypocrisy in this civilizational argument so you can talk about LGBTQ rights, but it's like if it's a campaign launched after your politician was caught in a, on a gay orgy, then it's a bit hypocritical. You can talk about against um, uh, pedophiles, but this whole scandal was began with an issue where a Hungarian ambassador to Peru was found guilty in pedophile charges. Uh, a lot of pictures was found in, in his computer. And then the typical reaction of Fidesz is that if they found uh, themselves in a scandal in something, they blame others. Right for the same thing that they were caught of. And having this huge media empire, they can do that. Plus, they want to control the domestic political agenda as well, where uh, there are some issues, uh, such as the Chinese Fuda University coming to Budapest and others, that made uh, many in Hungary outraged. And Orban desperately wants to win the 2022 elections. So in 2022, April, there will be the next parliamentary elections in Hungary, and he burns all his economic, uh, fiscal, diplomatic uh, resources to achieve this goal. But at the same time, it also reveals that, that the regime is vulnerable. And as you very rightly said, Orban can be replaced through elections, and he's afraid that he can uh, lose elections. That's why he wants to show up the international support through these conservative ideologues. You mentioned the the relationship with uh, Netanyahu, and I think one of the more paradoxical and fascinating aspects of this is I can well understand why Netanyahu sees a kindred soul in in Orban. I mean, whether it's registering NGOs that are critical of his government and his policies as foreign agents, et cetera. But there is an anti-Semitic aspect to Orban's domestic governance. I mean, the, the transformation of George Soros who, whatever you think of his philanthropic work, I mean, has become this kind of international bugbear, a Jewish financier who is somehow running shadow governments or trying to overthrow, you know, sovereign regimes and so on. Certainly in the Hungarian context, this strikes me as as being a little more than Judeophobic in the classical sense. And yet Netanyahu not only sees past that, but has indeed like taken up 
much of the same argument himself about Soros and, and all of that. I mean, this is a kind of weird 21st century phenomenon, isn't it? I mean, you, you can be the prime minister of the Jewish state, but also kind of aligned with anti-Semitic actors or people who are at least using, instrumentalizing anti-Semitism for their own political purposes. What do you make of that relationship? And have I sort of oversold Fidesz's kind of dark insinuations about the Semitic people, or is, is there is there more there than meets the eye, perhaps? I, this is very important and, and also a complicated relationship, but I would just start by saying that Ivan Krastev has, I think, a brilliant observation. He told recently that for illiberals in Central Eastern Europe, the real model was never Donald Trump and not really the Western far right that they serve as an inspiration without any question. But he told that the real model is Benjamin Netanyahu and, and Israel, a, a country that, that is fighting for its standing. I mean, literally here it's Central Eastern Europe, it's not uh, literal, but also that in their eyes are very strongly want to maintain ethnic homogeneity yeah. and also, uh, let's say, give give uh, some rights uh, selectively following uh, these uh, ethnical considerations that is building walls and proves that walls are successful. And the list goes on. And it, there was a very important moment when the previous ambassador of uh, Israel to Hungary strongly criticized uh, the anti-George Soros campaign that you mentioned. I mean, it, it, was, it was really Orwellian. It, if you went out to the streets, you could see his face everywhere. If you stepped up to the tram, there was George Soros um, uh, placards even on the, on the floor of the tram. So you could stand on, on his face, which was really, really, I think, below any imaginable uh, quality of political uh, communication. And it was in the radio everywhere. And, and there was a criticism of the, of the Israeli ambassador. And then Benjamin Netanyahu, who was a prime minister and foreign minister at the same time, overruled his, his ambassador. And he denied that Israel has any problem with the, with the campaign against George Soros. Of course, he and his son as well were in the forefront of criticizing George Soros for his interference into Israeli politics and being too soft on Palestines and also supporting pro-Palestine groups. And for Orban, it's very beneficial that uh, he could show up that Benjamin Netanyahu is one of his best friends because it's an open denial of, as he understood, as any claims of racism or anti-Semitism. If you have Benjamin Netanyahu on your side, then you cannot be an an anti-Semite. But at the same time, we prepared some polls in which we found that anti-George Soros conspiracy theories were very strongly correlating with anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, which is an open sign of that if you fuel one of them, the other one will be fueled as well. So even if if the rhetoric is openly not anti-Semitic, in a country where anti-Semitic conspiracy theories have very long histories and the same uh, grammatics are used to explain how the words big uh, globalist bankers are and financiers are, are conspiring against small countries. It can really remind everyone of the anti-Semitic topics. So I, I would agree that this more sinister interpretation, unfortunately, have 
particles of truth, even if it is plausibly deniable, because there are just very few openly anti-Semitic statements and figures in the, in the broader environment of the Orban regime. We, we talked a little bit about Orban as sort of an, uh, an exporter of these kind of intellectual currents that now have increasingly come to dominate the American right. I mean, I remember Steve Bannon, I think it was before Trump's election in 2016, saying, you know, Orban is the Ur-Trump. He is the original. That's the model that we'd like to bring here. And now increasingly you're seeing not just Tucker Carlson, but even among sort of the, what would you even call them, paleoconservative, I guess, intellectuals of the right, this real idea that this is exactly what we want. You know, a, a strong kind of Christian leader who is putting paid to all of the excesses and, and indulgences of postmodern liberalism, whether it's LGBTQ rights or so-called cancel culture and, and the proliferation of, of this kind of political correctness 2.0. This has a very powerful saleability in the U.S., at least from from where I'm sitting. You know, I mean, Donald Trump's star is undimmed in the Republican Party. There has been no real significant opposition to him, unless you count Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who, for all their conservative bona fides, are really more concerned with the unconstitutionality of Trump's leadership and his attempt to foment a coup. And yet we're not quite out of the woods. You know, uh, Joe Biden's argument, America is back and the attempt to, cr- to cast Trumpism as some kind of aberration on the long, steady upward trajectory of the American experiment. This, this seems to me the height of fantasy. Uh, it's very plausible that either Donald Trump himself might come back or more dangerously, a version of him that is more sophisticated, smarter, and can do what what you have very eloquently shown or pointed out that Orban has done, which is, you know, not completely dismantle democracy, but weaken it just enough that it becomes almost impossible to, to take the one man and his party out of the leadership. Do you see, like from where you're sitting, do you see that this kind of symbiosis between the American right and Orban and his kind of milieu is growing and that this poses a long-term danger, forget about to Hungary, all due respect, but to the United States as well. I would put it in a bit broader context in the sense that uh, there is a general sentiment, I would say, in in, uh, Europe and uh, including Central Eastern Europe, that United States have become a more unreliable ally after the Donald Trump presidency. And if a few thousand votes in a few battleground states can, such as Pennsylvania can decide over the uh, future of transatlantic relationship that that will be will there be NATO troops in Germany or not then it's a it's a problem uh, one thing the other thing is that there there are very strong uh, wishful uh, thoughts in central eastern europe in, in among leaders who have openly committed themselves to the support of Donald Trump in the presidential election, such as Viktor Orban or Janas Janza from Slovenia, that uh, Joe Biden will not be the president for more than four years, or generally there will be no Democrats uh, in power uh, anymore after this fourth term is, is over, and they openly bet for the next uh, Republican government, and they keep established ties with the American right, because they expect that uh, 
this democratic rule will prove highly temporary. And um, also, if we add into that, that I don't want to divert the discussion to that many directions, but uh, the uh, reputation of the United States after, for example, the withdrawal of the troops from Afghanistan, and also right now with this whole submarine deal uh, that that infuriated uh, France and the whole European Union. So it raises a lot of question marks in in Europe in general, about uh, how much investment the transatlantic relations worth, and also this this notion of strategic autonomy by the, the French has just becoming more and more appealing in that light. And in this context, it's easier to play on this let's say, notion of an alternative transatlanticism, a selective transatlanticism, an openness only to the conservative forces on the right. And yes, Viktor Orban have very consciously wanted to become a model for the international conservatives uh, in the last few years, as, as Anne Applebaum says it, the populi- populist internationale. Yeah. And uh, Hungary... Is, seems to be attractive for many in the far right in uh, Europe and also in the United States because there are it's an ethnically almost homogeneous country with no migrants. There is a considerable Roma population, but it, it's just not that much visible from, from outside and all the problems with them. There are no not so much, let's say, transgender issues and uh, and things like that because Hungarian societies on, 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 from this perspective have never been really uh, tolerant and right. and liberal uh, also no cancel culture in the sense that the american right using it on the other hand there's a very strong cancel culture in the sense that if uh, some universities are transformed following an ideological uh, level or if the cultural funds follow only ideological considerations if uh, press outlets are silenced because of their critical leaning towards the government, what is it if not uh, cancel culture? Uh, And there are very high allowances. So it really makes, I think, Hungary as as this kind of Rorschach test for international populists that they can project their dreams into uh, Hungary while they are blind to the very visible differences between the uh, American uh, conservative right uh, and uh, the Hungarian governmental party. The most important probably being the relationship towards China. Hungary is the most uh, pro-Chinese government within the all 27 countries in the European Union, while it is a tough phrase because Greece and Cyprus are only in the competition and still Hungary achieves to be the most pro-Chinese government with uh, very positive statements over Xi Jinping and his regime and uh, diluted criticism towards human rights abuses and also persecutions of Christians in China. But there are other notable differences as well. It was really bizarre when Tucker Carlson came here to Budapest and he's talking out about, against masks and against vaccines. Why in Hungary and the whole Central Eastern Europe, the governments are, so you don't really have this ideological uh, science, uh, denial of science, or at, not at least at the mainstream, you can more see it at the fringes. And the Hungarian pro-vaccination campaign has been very aggressive. And Hungary was one of the few countries uh, that used and the only country within the European Union that used, for example, Sputnik and, and Sinopharm, so Russian and Chinese vaccines, to vaccinate the population to get over 
as quick the pandemic as possible. This is interesting because, I mean, as we said earlier, the, the couching of everything in anti-totalitarian terms, you know, everything reminds us of the Soviet communism, pointing at, at things you don't like and calling it communist. And yet looking at communist China and pointing to that and saying, oh, no, that's fine. You know, we, as long as they're investing in Hungary, they're sending us their doses of vaccine. Trade is brisk. We have no quarrel. You know, forget about the Uyghurs, forget about human rights abuses or cyber espionage and, and the whole kit and caboodle. That to me is also one of these sort of paradoxical outcroppings of 21st century politics, right? I mean, what is it all, in your view that binds Budapest and, and Beijing? Is it, is it just purely about the transactional nature of the relationship? Or is there also a kind of weird ideological component to it? The officials in Hungary mostly explain the relationship with economic necessities, while the, how to say, role of China, even if we shouldn't deny that China is on the rise and, and really a rising superpower, but the importance of China as an economic investor in whole Central Eastern Europe is, is totally exaggerated. I, I call it authoritarian inflation in a piece I wrote to the Journal of Democracy. And uh, what you can see, for example, that while everyone talks about Chinese investments in Central Eastern Europe, in a lot of countries, Japan, South Korea, or for example, India are more important investors than China itself. So I think that there is an other element into that through this alleged pragmatism. And this is the cynical nature of, of the regime, why we cannot really see the public benefits of many investments, including the Budapest-Belgrade railway line built by Chinese loans, but finally paid by uh, Hungarian taxpayers, also the, also the Fudan University with a similar scheme that has practical, would be a, a gift to China. Right now it's put on hold, but it can be, I think, uh, built after the 2022 uh, election. So you don't see why is it good for Hungary as a country, why you can very clearly see why is it good for some business interests very close to the to the government and to the prime minister. So if you take private interest, then it makes much more sense than public interest. But if we go beyond that obvious element, I think there is this geopolitical consideration behind that. Orban really deeply believes the, in the collapse of the West, the decline of the West and the rise of the East. And he really thinks, and he told it many times openly, that the next century will be, uh, China will be the, let's say, dominating the world. And if you expect that, then it makes sense to loosen... To have an accommodation. Yeah, to loosen ties to the West and strengthen relationship towards the East. I think this decline of the West argument is here with us for more than a century. And um, let uh, us remind the, the lis uh, listeners that, that Edward Spengler's uh, book on the decline of the, of the West, it was written more than 100 years ago before. And back then it could seem really plausible, but since then, I mean, the, the history of the 20th century proved it, it really wrong. And I think the, the history of the 21st century will prove it it's utterly wrong as well. Still, right now, it's a strong argument. And there is this feeling of declinism in the whole West that, that makes it easier to sell. And one, just one more thought, because I think it's crucially important what you mentioned, this parallel between Moscow and the new globalist world and the new left and the argument 
that you can hear in the United States as well, in the, in the populist right, and in, in Western Europe among the populist right and in Eastern Europe around, among illiberals as well, is that globalist institutions and also the uh, big uh, companies are increasingly, let's say, the successors of, of, the, of an international Marxist ideology. Brussels is the new Moscow, as many, including Orban says, in Central Eastern Europe, that a new superpower that wants to suppress national sovereignty. And at the same time, big companies and international corporations or let's say spreading the LGBT ideology and the wokeness in the world through private channels. And this double threat is something that poses a huge danger on, as they say, the uh, European traditional culture that uh, in the in the focus of which we can find the nation state the family and christianity and also this is where this this argument of soft totalitarianism comes into the picture i had debates even open debates with Rod Dreher, and i i think he's he's a very intelligent guy with good thoughts and and an openness to discuss controversial issues and step out of tribal bubbles, which I I highly admire, but I found his argument of soft totalitarianism highly misleading. If you come, I mean, here in Central Eastern Europe, we know what totalitarianism is. So this region was dominated by the Nazis and with all its consequences, and then by the Soviet Union. So we have have some experience about real totalitarianism, saying that wokeness and the new political correctness is is anyhow similar to this totalitarianism. I think it's highly dangerous and it's just relativizing the very serious sins, historical sins of the past. You mentioned that Orban looks to be doing kind of what old early Putin had done in terms of taking over the media and silencing debate, but slowly, slowly, uh, without raising too many alarm bells, that this is sort of a authoritarianism in the making. But one thing I, that, that I find curious, too, is your assessment of how Hungary's security and intelligence capability has been affected by its cozy relationships with Beijing, and but also with Moscow. There was a story several years ago now, I'm sure you, you know it, the details better than I, but essentially there was a neo-Nazi training camp run on Hungarian soil. And actually people who were, were training up these fascists came from the Russian embassy in Budapest. They were GRU, officers under diplomatic cover, teaching the Nazis sort of paintball, infantry tactics, this kind of thing. And this was happening essentially in broad daylight. And I, I remember that there was a former counterintelligence chief who gave an interview to a still independent, or at least back then it was it was still in existence, a Hungarian outlet and said, I know for a fact that we had surveilled these guys and we had I'd kicked this up the chain of command and it made its way all the way into the prime minister's office. And yet nothing was done until Hungarian authorities raided the headquarters of this neo-Nazi group and Hungarian police officers were killed in, in the ordeal. Is there a kind of weird or dangerous relationship between, I mean, forget about even the, the political sector, but now Hungarian intelligence and Russian intelligence? And how does that affect Hungary's membership in NATO? Yes, it's, it is a really crucial point because uh, as we discussed so far, Hungary 
have really become a model for many. And uh, not only for conservatives in all around the world, but also for politicians, even mainstream politicians in Central Eastern Europe and the broader region, including, for example, Serbia. Uh, Alexander Vucic uses many tactics that Viktor Orban has, has uh, used uh, so far. And Viktor Orban generally is the most successful strongman in Central Eastern Europe. So he, his behavior can easily become the behavior of others in the uh, region as well. And what we could see in the last few years is that there have been many cases where the Hungarian authorities and the uh, security services were either incapable or unwilling uh, to counter obvious attempts of Russian influence, even in the, in the information domain. And even uh, elsewhere, there was a residency bond that's kind of uh, golden visa scheme in Hungary in place uh, under which the son of Sergei Narishkin, SVR chief, re- chief, received a residency in Hungary, in Budapest. And if you are in a soil of a country within the so-called Schengen zone with open borders, you can go anywhere. And also there were some uh, criminals, Russian criminals, who were caught in uh, Finland after they entered into the territory of the European Union through Hungary through this visa scheme. According to some information, the two GRU officials who uh, poisoned the scripts and who were also involved in the uh, explosion of this artillery factory in the Czech Republic were uh, spent a considerable time in Budapest and in Hungary as well. And also there were cases where uh, there was an arson attack, a false flag operation of, let's say, Polish nationalists uh, attacking, uh, Polish-Ukrainian, let's say, groups uh, attacking the Hungarian cultural house in Ujgorod, in Transcarpathia, in in Ukraine, where there is a considerable size of Hungarian minority. And contrary to the investigation of the Polish authorities, and Poland is one of the strongest allies of Hungary these days, uh, that found that these were pro-Russian rebels, practically, who, who were working for the Russian Federation. Hungary just was just keeping blaming Ukraine for its incompetence in, in countering and, and, and preventing these attacks. So the big picture is that uh, Hungary uh, either is incapable or turns a blind turns a blind eye to very obvious cases of Russian interference. And we can see something similar with China, with uh, an open gates to Huawei, with inviting a lot of uh, investments uh, from Chinese state-owned companies that obviously come with an inflow of uh, spies as well. So Hungary, uh, and I'm sorry to say that is increasingly becoming a hole in the shield of NATO. And that's one point where I think NATO allies should be very cautious and also very vigilant in following the events when there is, for example, a Russian state-owned bank opening international bank, namely opening offices in, in Budapest, but also having access to a lot of information and having access to other countries within the Schengen zone with a lot of NATO member countries, I think it's not only the United States and Great Britain that should raise their voices, they usually do, but other NATO countries as well, because the stakes are pretty high and NATO is still one of the most popular institutions in Hungary, contrary to the 
despite the fact that Viktor Orban is waging an ideological war against the West and its institutions for many years, NATO is still popular. And I think NATO membership is, is something that Orban still knows how precious is. So this is still probably uh, a possibility for leverage on Hungary. Yeah. Well, Peter, I think we've run out of time. I mean, but we you, you covered so much terrain and, and obviously there's a lot of food for thought in, in your comments here. But I am, as I said, very um, sort of keen to, to have you back to discuss as we see the development of kind of the American right, particularly as we approach another round of elections, whether it's going to be the midterms, which are coming up, God, shockingly soon, or the, the next presidential election, how much you know, if, if Orban is still in power, how much he's going to wield a kind of gray cardinal style influence on, on the American Republican Party as if, if indeed Donald Trump becomes the nominee again. But anyway, I do appreciate you <laughs> donating not just one, but two of your hours of your precious time last week and this week, this week, fortunately recorded for posterity. Happy to return anytime. Great. So Peter Kreko, it's been great and, and we'll have you back soon. You have been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, and we will see you next time.